<clears throat> a lot about the kingdom of God, a lot about what Jesus did for you and for me. Tonight we're going to start chapter 2. And let's have a prayer and then we're going to look at the beginning of this and we're going to go through a lot of verses tonight and get quite a, quite a long ways in it. So let's just pray. Father, we just thank you for this powerful word from God breathed out of the nostrils of God. Thank you for its instruction. Thank you for its illumination. Thank you, Lord, for strengthening us tonight with the word. We praise you and we bless you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Preach a little bit. Tell your neighbor it's going to be good tonight. Perk up and listen. I love going through whole books because every word is from God. And, you know, if I uh, sent you a letter, you said, well, I'm just going to read a sentence or two and leave the rest of it alone. I, I get the gist of what he's saying. Or let's just say you did that. What would you feel about the recipient of your letter? You wouldn't like that, would you? If you took a lot of time to send a letter and you only read a sentence or two and said, I think I get it. No, especially if it's a romance or something like that, you want the recipient to read every word and cry over it, right? Um, now, God has given us 66 books. We're not to read just a few verses. We're to go through all of it because he gave all of it to us. Amen? Now, we're going to talk about knowing Jesus better, which there is no greater life goal than that one. All right? Now, the last time we looked at Jesus as our great reconciler. Thank God for the reconciliation of Jesus Christ. And this time we're going to see Paul first encourage his readers to experience the truth as it is found in Jesus Christ. Can you say with me, he is truth. He didn't just tell the truth. He was truth personified, truth in person, truth consummately. He was truth, is truth, always will be. Now, then Paul's going to expose the lie of the cult that was threatening not just the Colossian church, but the entire church at large, all the way down to you and me, because this cult didn't do anything that cults in our day don't do, and that is undermine, marginalize, and attack the person and the work of Christ. And it's happening around us all the time, especially in a day of mass media. So I guarantee you, what they experienced back then, we've got squared. Amen? Now the battle lines had been drawn. And Satan must be stopped here in Colossae. Paul knew that it was a small, insignificant town. And the church was not a big church. It was not one of the more famous churches. Yet that's where Satan chose to attack with this Gnostic cult. He attacked them, thinking if I can get a beachhead, establish a beachhead here, then I can spread throughout the rest of the church world. I need to pick the weakest link and attack it. And his methodology is the same with you and me today. He'll look for the weakest link in your life or mine or in a church and he'll attack it because he doesn't play fair. Never has. Never will. Now let's read together verse 1 of chapter 2. For I want you to know, well that's about two of you. I know it's been a long day but come on I'm letting you preach now. I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. 
We know from the book of Revelations that the enemy's tactic against the church in Laodicea was luxury. You say you're rich and have need of nothing, but you don't know that you're miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be genuinely rich. That was Laodicea. So how did he attack that church? Luxury. They had gotten to the point where they didn't even think they needed Jesus. I have need of nothing is what they said. And Jesus confronted them. Now, the tactic against the Colossian church was not luxury, but it was lies. So this shows you that Satan custom designs his modes of attack. He custom designs. He looks at the Colossian church and says, well, I can hit them with a lie. At the Laodicean church, I think I can hit them with materialism. So he custom designs based on the target. Now here, Paul was in great conflict of heart over both churches, Laodicea and Colossae. His prayer for them was that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, that is a classic Pauline sentence. Yeah, tapestry verse. Comma after comma after comma, truth stacked on top of truth on top of truth. So, let's look at it just a little bit. He says, bound together by love. We're not bound together by a church name. We're bound together by what? Love. Paul says that a good knowledge of Jesus Christ does what to us? That's what it does for us. Why are we learning the Bible the way we are? Because the more you come to know Jesus, the more enriched, I guarantee you, you will become. People who say, I tried Christianity and it didn't work, didn't try Christianity. They just thought they did. But they were very deceived. Because Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and not tried. Now he says here, the more you know Jesus, the more enriched you're going to be. Anybody in here want to know him better? Am I talking to people that just want to know Jesus better? That's the best thing you could do in your whole life is know Jesus better. Now the word used for riches means to be wealthy. The same word is used to describe the rich man whose prosperity was so great he contemplated building bigger barns to contain all of his goods. And Jesus called him a fool because he had not been rich toward God, but, the, but he was so rich he didn't know what to do with all of it. Same word is used, but it's talking about spiritual riches, riches of a different kind. Jesus talked about the superiority of spiritual riches over earthly wealth when he said these words. And you'll recognize this, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Now I was reading yesterday in, in the news, now we've got these copper thieves going around in some states. They're walking away with the whole AC units. They're not just going in and cutting the copper wire out. They're going in quick and swiftly and in mass and carrying away the whole unit, copper and all. And, and not only that, but they're going for copper gutters. So they're being called gutter thieves. Because in some places of the country, the, the corner of the gutters is made out of copper. 
So people are going out and finding that their gutter has been stolen. You know what? Anything on this earth can be stolen. That's why Jesus talked about, you better look at storing up treasures for yourself in heaven because what's down here? Thieves break in and steal. You thought you had a great 401k till about three years ago when you woke up and realized half of it was gone. What happened to it? Poof, the stock market. It was gone. You can't track it down, chase it down, find the thieves that took it, although I know they're sitting in D.C. That's free. <laughs> they steal with impunity. But anyway, Jesus said, whatever is down here, it can be taken from you. But guess what? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where no moth can get to it, no rust will destroy it, and no thief can steal it. Spiritual riches. What you're getting tonight, no thief can steal from you. Spiritual riches. All right? Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Amen. Now, show me what you love above all things, and I'll show you where your heart is. Now, keep in mind that the Gnostic cult attacking the Colossian church claimed to have a secret. This cult claimed to have a secret, and it was their secret knowledge. All cults talk this way. We've got an inside track. We're going to give you some information, if you'll become a part of us, that no one else has. They all say this. The Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of them. Let us come into your living room, sit down with you, and we will open up this Bible or whatever it is they're peddling, and we will turn you on to some information that will change your life because we've got a secret. Don't even let them in your door. But this is the same thing, nothing new. They said, we got secret knowledge, Gnosticism, Gnostic cult, Gnosticism, the word for knowledge. We got knowledge, and this knowledge will save you. And the problem was that it didn't have anything to do with the blood sacrifice of Christ Jesus. It was another gospel. Now, the real truth was that God had a secret. <laughs> I love that. God had a secret. And you know what he called it in the Bible? The mystery of God. That secret was Jesus Christ, Christ incarnate. Can you say with me, God had a secret? Oh, he does. Listen, how many of you were surprised to learn how real he was when you got saved? All right, God's got a secret. And that secret was Jesus Christ incarnate, God visiting man wrapped in skin, putting on a human form. Christ in whom dwelt all, all, not some, but all of the fullness of God. So now Paul, he's sharpening his saber, and he's about to let this cult have it full steam ahead. Watch this. He takes another deadly swipe at the Gnostic cult that was infiltrating the Colossian church and trying to lead them astray, and Paul scoffs at their so-called secret knowledge by stating, read this with me, in him, that is Jesus, lie hidden all, how many? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to know where wisdom is? It's in Jesus. You want to know who has all knowledge? It's Jesus. 
Now, when I read those last two words, it reminded me, in the Bible, you'll see a trilogy of words that have to do with wisdom, knowledge, and so forth. It's these, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. That's one of the Bible's favorite trilogy of words. Wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Well, what's the difference? Knowledge is information gained from learning. It's just having a bunch of facts. Knowledge is learning facts, data. That's it. Now, there's people that have all kinds of knowledge and no wisdom. They got all kinds of facts, but no wisdom. Knowledge is just the gathering of facts. So you can be very knowledgeable and have no wisdom, but what's wisdom? Wisdom is knowing the right thing and doing it. That's wisdom. Wisdom is knowing the right thing and not, not just that, but doing it. And where does wisdom come from? It begins. You will never have wisdom until you have the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Now, if I have the fear of the Lord, when I know the right thing to do, I'm going to do it. If I don't have the fear of the Lord, I can know the right thing all day long. A lot of church folk are this way. I know the right thing, but I ain't going to do it. Did I just say ain't? I did. It was on purpose. See, wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord. See, I can know a right thing, but have no fear of God and never do it. But if I've got the fear of the Lord, when I know the right thing to do, I'm going to do it. That's wisdom. Knowledge is gathering facts. Wisdom is knowing the right thing and then doing it. Well, then what's understanding? Understanding is having the information I need to do the right thing right. Let me tell you what I mean. Now let's look at it this way. Matthew 18, 15 says, if you know that you have offended your brother, or if your brother has offended you, go to him and work it out. Everybody know that verse? If your brother has offended you, go to him and work it out. All right, then we have that knowledge. I know the fact. Jesus said it. Now if I have the fear of the Lord, when my brother offends me, I'm going to what? Do it. Why? Because I have the fear of the Lord. Come on, y'all are coming around now. So I, I can have the knowledge that I should do, but I see church people all the time. They'll, they'll have an offense happen between them, and they will not go work it out. They have the knowledge, but they don't have wisdom to go do the right thing because the fear of the Lord has not been instilled in their life like it ought to be. But now watch this. I also know that if I've got an issue with a brother and I'm supposed to go to him and I'm very willing to go do it, that's my wisdom. I'm going to do it, but understanding helps me to know how to execute it in a way that it's successful in terms of timing, what I say, how I say it. That's understanding. Knowledge is factual gathering. Wisdom is knowing the right thing and doing it. Understanding is knowing how to do the right thing best. Now, where do you get all of that? Jesus. 
So I go to my brother and I say, look, I messed up too, and, and I said some things I shouldn't have said, and man, I love you, and, and, and can we just pray together, and I want to work this out, and I don't want to say anything to make you matter, and, and I pick the right timing, I pick the right place, I pick the right wording, knowledge, wisdom, understanding. You need all three, and they all three are found in Jesus. Jesus has it all. In fact, the humblest believer who knows the Lord Jesus has access to more knowledge and more wisdom than any unsaved person. No matter how many degrees they hold or how high their IQ might I've seen people with extremely high IQs live stupid lives. They have, they have volumes of encyclopedic information, but they have zero wisdom, no understanding. What we want is knowledge, then we want wisdom, then we want understanding. And it's all found in him. The psalmist wrote, watch this, I love this. The Lord's laws are faithful, they make naive people wise. See, some of you sitting in here tonight, you may have never gotten past high school, but you have more wisdom than some PhDs walking around that have never been exposed to the Word of God and never been exposed to Christ. That's a fact. That's just truth. I know it. If you just read the Bible, it makes naive people wise. Our world has got plenty of knowledge, but we don't have much wisdom. Just before Jesus went to Calvary, he said in the last days, just prior to his return, there would be perplexity of nations. Perplexity of nations. One commentator says this phrase can be translated, quote, at a loss for a way, or... No solution to their embarrassments? Are we there right now? Look, look, at, look at America right now. Our schools are caving in. We, we're the most blessed nation in the history of the world. We're the most wealthy nation in the history of the world. Yet our schools are way, way, way down on the list of quality and effectiveness we got scandals now in America, in Atlanta and other places where teachers have literally erased and changed test scores for children in mass over 10 years, passing them when they don't know anything so that they can look good when they are looking at a promotion. We are professing ourselves to be wise. We have become fools. I could preach on this all night long. It is incredible to look at what we could have, should have, and don't have because we told God, don't need you, don't want you. There's the door, adios, goodbye. And when God walked out, ignorance walked in because he is the cornerstone of all true education. So we, we've, got, we've got all these perplexing problems, no solution to our embarrassments. Or it can mean at their wit's end. Perplexity of nations, they're going to be at their wit's end or without resources. Now think about this. We have mega chips the size of a fingernail, able to store more than a million bits of information and capable of pouring out over one million bits of information before we can say, 
high. Think about that. A million bits of information on the size of a fingernail, and they're going to go way past that in no time. We've been in the moon. We can contact anyone on earth in mere seconds. Yet as the final minutes of time sift through the prophetic hourglass and the return of Christ is at the door, man is going to find himself, according to Jesus, perplexed, confused, at a loss, and at his wit's end. Plenty of knowledge, but no wisdom. You know why? Because there's no fear of the Lord. Paul continues. He says, quote, I'm telling you this so that no one beguiles you with enticing words, because even though I'm absent physically, I'm with you in the spirit. I'm happy to see the discipline and stability of your faith in Christ. That's verses 5 and 6. Now, the word beguiles, be careful that nobody beguiles you, means deceive by false reasoning. It occurs in the Bible only here and in James 1 verse 22 where we're warned against deceiving ourselves because if you deceive you, you are really deceived. The phrase enticing words, be careful nobody beguiles you with enticing words, means persuasive speech and plausible arguments. The kind of stuff you get when you go to college and they set out to ruin your faith. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. This is exactly what the Gnostic cult was doing. They were persuasively arguing with false reasoning to entice them into believing their claims. All cults and false teachings do the same thing. Evolution, atheism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Eastern religions like Buddhism, Hinduism, all those, all of them, they do exactly the same thing. They use persuasive words with seeming logic to try to seduce you away from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. They'll call you ignorant, stupid, backward, uninformed, naive, dumb, and worse if you go to college and say, I believe in Jesus Christ and I believe that God created the universe, right there, they got you tagged. But you know what? Evolution doesn't have a tail to swing by. It doesn't. Uh, as a matter of fact, these all prey upon the uninformed and the young in the faith. All these cults do. How many times have you seen young people go off to college only to have their faith undermined? by the smooth, enticing words of atheistic evolutionists. Happens all the time. Every day, happening right now somewhere. Oh yeah, yeah, this all just evolved out of nothing. Something never comes from nothing unless it's created by God. This is why Paul is bringing his readers back to Christ Jesus. He says, come on back. Let's get back. For all truth is centered in him. Jesus said of himself, read it with me, I am the truth. Preach it to me now. Say it again. I am the truth. Jesus said, I am the consummation of truth. Period. Truth begins and ends with him. It's consummated in him. It's complete in him. 
It's a good thing to keep in mind that by the time Jesus appeared, all major world religions except for Islam had already been founded. When Jesus was born, they had all already been founded a couple of centuries before. Buddha, Confucius, had already come and gone. The great Greek thinkers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all of them had come and gone. They got the world's attention. They impressed everybody. They, they still impress our poor colleges who put all kinds of stock in those people who, who themselves admitted that their philosophy had not done it for them. And yet we'll call, we'll talk about Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and all of these Eastern religion mystics and all of this. But if you mention Jesus, oh, no, 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 not, not, Jesus had no wisdom. He wasn't, he wasn't smart. He just walked around kind of on a fairy cloud saying neat things and loving on people. Now, Jesus was the most brilliant man that ever lived. He created IQ. He created the brain. He created man. There was nothing he didn't know. That's why he's my chief teacher, chief philosopher, and if anybody contradicts him, they're out. I don't need, I've read a lot of these guys. And, and I'm telling you that, that they'll tell you, you, you look, Nietzsche, Nietzsche died with his mind infested with syphilis. He was crazy, and yet our colleges act like Nietzsche is, is a demigod. I can just name the philosophers that came and went that our colleges esteem so highly, and yet they admitted, they admitted in their own writings, I, I did not come to a, a final fulfilling conclusion. But Jesus said, I am truth, the truth. The world's man-made religions and human philosophy had shown themselves to be bankrupt, every one of them. Paul presents Jesus as the one no one can be compared to, for he stands alone. Nobody can even come close to him. He said, don't let any man beguile you with enticing words, Paul warns. Christ Jesus totally eclipses all others. He, Paul has, had a mantra, no Jesus. And i got to tell you, folks, if you want to talk about a philosopher king, you look at that man named Paul. Nobody wrote the profound thoughts that this man did. This man was a philosopher of philosophers, a thinker of thinkers, a brilliant, stunning mind. He wrote stuff that if the, the college professors would give him a chance and read it and not judge him through the lens of humanism, but judge him based on what he said, the guy was off the charts. And yet he, he boiled it all down to, let me just tell you, if you want wisdom, it's Jesus. If you want knowledge, it's him. If you want understanding, there it is. Know him and you will be invincible. All of this world's clever ideas stand exposed in their moral and spiritual bankruptcy when put next to Jesus Christ. Now next, Paul places the Christian's life under a new direction. Say it with me, the Lordship of Christ. Preaching on that this Sunday, don't miss it. He says, so live in Christ Jesus, the Lord, in the same way as you received him. 
Can you say with me, live in Christ Jesus? Now here's what he's doing. He's saying in light of this incredible, <laughs> my little back just fell off the clicker, but I think I'm good. I thought my glasses popped out. <laughs> I saw this thing fly. This will be edited out. All right. So he says, in light of this incredible Messiah, this truth incarnate, be sure that now, since you believe in him and walk and know him, that you walk in him. The order of the name, Christ Jesus, he said, Christ Jesus. Isn't that what he said? Live in Christ Jesus the Lord. That order is deliberate. When the Lord is referred to as Jesus Christ, except for in the workplace where it's used badly, the name, isn't it interesting? Do you ever hear anybody get mad and say, Buddha! <laughs> Do you? Isn't it interesting? They always pick the Lord to slam. Krishna! I wish I hadn't done that. Confucius! No, it's always... You know why? Because the devil hates that name. The name Jesus is emphasized due to its coming first when Jesus Christ is used in the New Testament. The title Christ is descriptive of the name Jesus. In the Gospels, the use of Jesus Christ reveals that he's the Lord's anointed Christ and Israel's Messiah. But when the order is reversed to Christ Jesus, as it is in verse 6 that we just read, the title Christ is emphasized and the name Jesus is secondary and descriptive. Well, what does all that mean? When this order is used, the truth conveyed is that the one who is now exalted and glorified, Christ, once humbled himself as a man, Jesus. What was this cult saying? God never became a man. What is Paul saying now here? Oh, yes, he did. Christ, the anointed Messiah, Jesus, the man. It was God revealed in human flesh, in the person of Christ Jesus, that the cultists in Colossae were so viciously attacking. They didn't want that fact taught or established, but it's true. The anointed Messiah, Israel's Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, came in the form of a man, Jesus. They were demeaning his dual divinity and humanity, so Paul uses the phrase Christ Jesus to say God's anointed Messiah appeared as a man. Hit him right between the eyes. Punch! Now next, Paul goes even further and calls him Christ Jesus who? The Lord. How crucial it is that we get this, folks. The word Lord comes from the Greek word kurios, which means it's speaking of authority and lordship, and lordship particularly related to ownership. That's why we need to understand this. If you're a blood-bought child of God, you are purchased. You are owned. That means you're not your own because you're owned. That's what Lord means. And how, isn't it interesting? People want the Messiah. They want the Savior, but they don't want the Lord. 
But the two come in the same package. You can't take one and not have the other, but a lot of people live that way. Well, I'm saved. I got my ticket to heaven, but lordship, I'll make him lord. You don't ever make Jesus lord. <laughs> he is lord. You don't make him lord. Well, when I'm 70 years old, I'll get around to crowning Jesus Lord of my life. Dude, he's Lord of your life now. Your next breath is in his hands. Make him Lord. <laughs> That's so unbiblical. The Christian life is not just a lifestyle that somebody chooses. It's a life under a new director, a new owner. Well, I don't like that at all. I want to be my own person. You've never been your own person. Oh, yeah, I was when I did what I wanted to do, went where I wanted to go. You never did that. When did you do that? Because my Bible tells me you were the slave of sin. And you were under the hard taskmaster of the devil. You never went where you wanted to go and did what you wanted to do. You were driven by the God of this world. You've never been your own. You, either, you have the choice of either having one director or the other, one owner or the other one master or the other, the first one will kill you, the next one will give you life, the first one will take you to hell, the second one will take you to heaven. Which one do you want? Because you have never been your own. Lordship means that every step we take is directed by the Lord who has the authority by right of ownership to tell us what to do and where to go anytime he wants. Going from here, Paul places the Christian life in a new distinction. Not just a new direction, but a new distinction. Abiding and abounding in Christ. Read this with me, everybody. Verse 7. Be rooted and built up in Him. Be established in faith and overflow with thanksgiving just as you were taught. Doesn't that sound like your day today? It should. You should have been rooted today, built up today, established today, and overflowing with thanksgiving. That takes us out right there, doesn't it? Because you were in rush hour traffic. So I doubt you were being thankful, but guess what? That right there is a good picture of what every day ought to look like in the life of the believer. Rooted, built up, established. Look at these. Rooted, built up, established, overflowing, taught, thankful. What a picture of abundant life. In Christ Jesus the Lord. Not the boring thing that a lot of people think it is, is it? Rooted, built up, established, overflowing, taught, thankful. Let me just talk to you about rooted for a minute. The Lord Jesus is the deep, rich soil in which we have been rooted. You are rooted. Now, then he says built up. He's also the solid, unshakable rock on which we are being built. It's the foundation that our life is being built on. We're rooted, we're built up. Let's talk about the rooted for a minute. Think of yourself first as a great tree. Trees are marvels of nature. I'm amazed at trees. We have, we've been in our current house 19 years, almost 20 years, 20 years. First year there, we built this little bitty tree, or built, planted in rich soil. Little bitty, little bitty oak, Live oak, right here. Now it covers the backyard. The birds of the air nest in it. The leaves cover us in the fall. That's the red oak. 
That's why she's over there. She keeps me straight. But now watch this. Did you know that on a mountain in California, just north of Death Valley, grows a gnarled, weather-beaten, bristle-cone pine tree known as Methuselah? And you know Methuselah is estimated to be 4,600 years old? That's old, folks. Any way you want to shake it, that's old. <laughs> Methuselah, named after the oldest man in the Bible, 4,600 years old. Think about this. When David was writing his Psalms, Methuselah had been growing for about 1,600 years. When Abraham was born in Ur of the Chaldees, old Methuselah had been growing for hundreds of years when God spoke to Abraham and said, start walking. Methuselah was there. In fact, if the age is accurately estimated, Methuselah has been there since the great flood of Noah. Methuselah. How could this be? Because the life of a tree resides in the roots. Your life resides in your roots. A tree like Methuselah has a root system equal in proportion with the outward life visible to the naked eye. When you look at Methuselah and you see it just branching out, spreading out, this huge, magnificent, old, ancient tree, you can know that underneath the root system is equivalent to what's above. As go the roots, so go the fruits. As go your roots, so will go your fruits. As the branches reach out higher and higher and farther and farther, so the roots go down deeper and deeper and spread out wider and wider. In any tree, Methuselah or our live oak in the backyard. Paul says we are thus, this way, rooted in Christ. This is why I constantly exhort you and all of our listeners on radio all the time, be in the Word, be in prayer, water your root system because you don't want what's up here exceeding what's down here in the roots because you can grow. I've watched people go into huge, I mean, far-reaching ministries but they took no time to take care of their own soul. The root system withered. The root system was never watered. The soul was never taken care of. And one day a strong wind of temptation or a strong wind of trial comes and blows it down. And you see this great big huge tree of a life blow down. And you see that the roots were dwarfed compared to what was above. What you want is a balanced life where as your roots grow, so the fruit grows. So you get with God every year. Some people, you get with him on Easter. No, you get with God every day. Water those roots. Water those roots. Water those roots. Because you know what it's like outside, spiritually? Just like it was today, physically. It's hot. It's dry. It's arid. And you got to water your root system. Water the roots of your soul. Let your outer life grow in unison with your inner life. I'm going to stop right there because I want to pray with you. And I'm not going as far as I could have. 
But I want to stop right there. Can I stop right there? I want to pray with you. Because, folks, listen, when your roots are watered, you can take anything. Our tree's roots are watered richly. And I've seen winds come through our backyard. I just knew that tree is done. But no, it bends, it bows, it stretches, but it stays intact because its roots are deep and wide. That's how God wants you and I to be. So I want you to stand with me tonight, can you? And I want to exhort you as we close out, and everybody listening by radio, don't, don't allow the busyness of life to take you away from watering your soul. Um, today I walked outside to get our mail, and then we have these purple flowers because we're TCU fans. We have purple flowers all in the front. Bunches of purple flowers. What, what are they called? What are they called? Anyway, they're beautiful purple flowers. I planted them, I just don't know what they were. But they're all along the front and in halves, sidewalk, some on the right, some on the left. The ones on the left have no shade and that sun just beats on them all day long. The ones on the right are shaded. They're flourishing, growing, doing great. And I look at that, I always think in illustrations all the time and I look at that and thought, now there's life. Sometimes you're shaded and you're, you're going through a time where everything's great, do, doing well, and you just flourish. But then there's times when the heat of life just beats down on you. And you're tried from a hundred different directions. And I watch those poor little flowers just wilting, shrinking, and compared to these over here night and day. So three times a day we have to go out and water those flowers to keep them alive these over here don't need it right now in america it's hot and it's going to get hotter the survivors are going to be those that know how to water the root system and stay strong that's going to be the survivors folks so I want to pray for you. How many of you needed this tonight? You need this tonight? All right. I'm going to pray for you. I want to pray that this church will stay watered, 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 watered. I mean watered all the time. And we'll survive and thrive in hot times, times of drought. Father, I just give this church to you and all of our radio listeners to you. I thank you, Lord, that even David said, those that are um, Lord, those that meditate in your word are like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And they will flourish and bear fruit in their due season. And they will not wilt and will not faint and it will not die. We want to be the tree planted by the rivers of living water. We want our root system to be watered. We don't want to neglect the roots. We want to see rich fruit come out of our life, Lord, but it'll never happen unless the roots are watered. So, Lord, help us to go to that word. Help us to spend time with you.
Help us, Lord, take the phone off the hook, turn the TV off. Tell whoever's in the house, we're going to go pray. We're going to go get with God and shut the door and get alone with God. And water the roots. Then we know, Lord, whatever comes, we will not be plucked up. We will not fail to bring forth fruit in our season. If this is your prayer tonight, would you just lift your hands and say, Lord, I want to thrive and survive in these times. Help me to do this very thing. Help me to do this very thing. Water those roots. Water that root system. Help me, Lord, to take time. Set a time. Make a time. And water my soul with the Word of God. Help me to do it, Lord. I sense the Lord here right now. Thank you, Lord. Lord hadn't left you. He has not forsaken you. He has not turned his back on you, and he has not forgotten you. The Lord is calling you to himself. The Lord is speaking to your heart. He has a good word for you. He has a good word for you in the quiet place. He has a good word for you in the place of silence. He has a good word for you waiting if you will only come and receive it. He has a good word for you that will lift your soul, put sparkle in your eyes, will put a smile on your face, will will lighten your countenance. He has a word of encouragement for you and a word of direction and a word of guidance for you. In the quiet place, he's waiting for you to shut everything out and get with him. He will speak to you and he will encourage you and he will pick you up and he will dust you off and he will strengthen you. It waits for you in the quiet place, shut in with God. name go and get your treasure thank you